About 3,500 years ago, God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he used Moses to do it. We don't know the exact number, but we know probably over a million people crossed the Red Sea and went into the barren wilderness. God was obvious in, in their crossing. After that, God shows up on a mountain and, and gives the people the law, the Ten Commandments, what's right and what's wrong. After that, God is continually providing for the people. In this barren land, he provides water and then daily food called manna. And not only that, meat and quail. And, and God provides and provides and provides, but the people complain. They complain and complain. They send spies into the land, which is the whole point. God was delivering them and then using them to judge the evil practices of Canaan that they would go into the land that was promised to Israel, but they didn't want to go. They were afraid. And so in judgment, God said that that generation would die. And for 40 years, they just wandered in the wilderness until they died off and a new generation was ready to go into the promised land. During that time, they kept complaining to God. They said, they cried out to Moses, why did you even bring us out of Egypt? We were better off as slaves. There's no normal food around here. There's no water. We hate this miserable bread. And they complained like that and God brought judgment on the people in the form of poisonous snakes. Snakes were everywhere. They just showed up, and their bite was poisonous and would kill them. So people are, are snake-bitten. Remember, there's no place to go in the wilderness. How many of you have a snake story? We all got a snake story, right? I remember years ago, I was out in the middle of nowhere uh, in a work truck on a two-wheel track, and... Uh, I was outside the truck and there was a huge rattlesnake right at my feet and I kind of jumped and it started off the other way but then it just turned around and headed toward me. There was a shovel in the back of the truck. I grabbed the shovel and I was fending off the snake with it and that rattlesnake was like bing, 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 hitting the end of the shovel. It was freaky. Finally, I was able to kill it. And, uh, but, but think about it this way. What if I was there, and that was in the middle of nowhere? I mean, if I was snake bit, there's really no place to go. What if my wife was there? What if my kids were there? What if I didn't have a shovel or a truck? I just lived in a tent. I mean, that's what the Hebrew people were experiencing. A million or so people and snakes all around. They're poisonous. They're biting people. People are getting sick and dying. And finally, the people realize that this is this is not normal. This is judgment from God. And they know why, because they were complaining. So they come to Moses and they cry out, Moses, intercede for us. Ask God to get rid of these snakes. We've sinned against God. We admit it. Ask him to take them away. And Moses does. And God answers. But he doesn't take the snakes away. What he does is he tells Moses to make a bronze snake and then put it on a pole 
and lift it up into the air and set that pole up. And then Moses, remember there's a lot of people covering a lot of acres of ground. Moses puts the word out to the people, if you've been bitten, come and look at this snake. If you look in faith, then you'll live. You won't, you'll not die from, the, from being snake bitten. And so that spreads around and people are desperate to get their kids, their family. There's nowhere to hide. They live among the rocks and prairies in tents. I mean, snakes are everywhere, slithering all around them. They make their way to this pole that's set up and they look to that and they're saved. As a matter of fact, if you go there today near that area, on Mount Nebo in Jordan, I've been there, you can see a monument to this. A big kind of pole thing with one snake on it. And if you look in the background, actually beyond that is, is the land of Israel. This is on the Jordan side, the east side of the Jordan River. And you can look across and see all of Israel. And really this symbol shouldn't be new to us, we see it all the time. It comes straight from Numbers, a book in the Old Testament called Numbers, chapter 21. And we'll get back to all that in just a moment, but 1,500 years after that event, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is just beginning his ministry. And it's the first time he's ministered in Jerusalem. He goes there. Nobody knows who he is. And he shows up in a, in a day where the, the city's just packed with people celebrating Passover. We talked about this last week. He goes in to the temple, and, and the largest outer court at the temple is packed with tens of thousands of people. And now it's become sort of a religious marketplace where they're selling animals for slaughter, and they're, they're selling... You know, they're also exchanging money and they're sort of doing this in a way that they can profit. And Jesus comes and sees that and he realizes that they violated the whole reason for that space at the temple. This is known as the court of the Gentiles. It existed so Jewish people could explain to non-Jewish people who are called Gentiles the way of God and teach them about God. But instead of that happening, it's just packed with people selling Animals, people, money, doves in cages, just all over the place. Jesus makes, you know, ties some cords together, makes a little whip. He, he drives the, the people who own the, the animals out with their animals, the oxen, the sheep. They're all driven out. He tells the people with doves, get them out of there. He does all this, and somehow, in the middle of tens of thousands of people, he clears the temple of all that activity. And people in Jerusalem, they're noticing this, especially the religious leaders. And there's one man, his name is Nicodemus. He's at the top of the leadership in Israel. He's a Pharisee. There's a lot of Pharisees, and Pharisees were known for their knowledge. They were teachers. They, they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They sometimes had, usually had the first five books of the Bible memorized the first five books of the Bible. But he's not just a Pharisee, Nicodemus. He actually serves on, as a member of the Sanhedrin. 
It was the Supreme Court in Israel that really reported to Rome. And there were Pharisees and another sect called Sadducees that was more liberal and they would serve together, but he was a Pharisee on that court. He sees what Jesus has done in clearing the temple grounds of, of all this marketplace kind of religious business that's going on. And he sends word he wants a one-on-one with Jesus. And he meets Jesus, and that brings us, by the way, to John chapter 3. And if you haven't heard, for the next, these four months, we're actually going through the book of John chapter by chapter, went through chapter 2 last week, and now it's chapter 3. And here's what's happening. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he has some questions. And actually, there are three questions that are answered Two that he asks, one, the first one is implied. He never gets the question out, and Jesus answers it. And then two more questions he has to follow up. So there's three questions, and here it is. Here's the first question is basically the implied question is, what's your message? What's going on? What's this about? All right. Jesus answers the implied question in Nicodemus's mind. We see that in verse 1 of John 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's a lot of remarkable things that's happening here. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's on kind of the highest level. And it's kind of remarkable that he at least gives Jesus, whom he doesn't know before this incident, he gives Jesus this compliment of calling Jesus a rabbi or a teacher. He shows Jesus some respect because Jesus is, is youngish for a rabbi. He's 30 years old. And it was known to everybody that Jesus had never had really any formal rabbinical training. But he says, calls him rabbi, and he, he comes at night, and we only speculate that that's because, hey, this is not the politically correct thing to do, that go talk to this upstart rabbi that we don't even know who he is, who just caused a huge disruption in the temple during the most important week of the year. Maybe he was embarrassed, or maybe he just wanted more time to be one-on-one with Jesus and kind of avoid all the crowds. We don't know. He recognizes that Jesus is from God, that he has a divine calling, but he does not get at all Jesus's true nature, who he really is. And he, he basically says, Rabbi, he's admitting, hey, Jesus is a teacher, and that's the implied of the word, but Jesus is not just a teacher of the word. Jesus is the word. That's what we've already found out in John 1. Now, Nick is part of this religious elite And the people thought this was a huge system from the Old Testament, from back when Moses received that law. And and people had turned this, religious leaders had turned this into a system of how they could be okay with God. It was a whole system about how they could uh, keep the law and the traditions of other teachers before them on how to keep the law. 
And, and the people, they viewed guys like Nicodemus, all Pharisees, anybody who is inclined to be religious or want to follow God, they looked at the Pharisees, well, these guys are at the top. I mean, if anybody's going to heaven, it's these guys. If anybody's all right with God, it's these guys. Their whole life is dedicated to knowing the law and following the law. That's what they do. And he comes and says, Nicodemus comes and says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher. And before he even goes on, there's an implied question. Hey, we recognize that you've come from God, that God's given you some message. And the implied question that he never gets to is, is what's up? What's the message? Okay, you're from God. What are you coming here to say to us? What do you want to let us know? What do you want to tell us? And then Jesus doesn't answer his words because he doesn't actually say that. He's thinking it, but Jesus answers his thoughts. And interestingly enough, Jesus declines to go into a long, courteous exchange, which is kind of how this is starting, that was kind of common in that time in history that sort of would always skirt around the point. Jesus just cuts to the chase. And he not only cuts to the chase, he goes graduate level. This is Nicodemus. He's a famous Pharisee, famous rabbi, famous teacher. So Jesus goes grad level on him, doctorate level, and he says this. He cuts to the chase in verse 3. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then we're all going today. Oh, that's where this born again thing came from. Yeah, John 3, 3 is where it starts. It's exactly right. And so Nick's whole life was about striving to follow the Old Testament law and its regulations and its traditions. And in one statement, Jesus wipes all of that away, sweeps away everything Nick stood for, cuts to the chase. He says, you have a problem. He says, Nicodemus, you have a problem. You cannot get to heaven by human striving. You can only get to heaven by a rebirth that only God can provide. That's, that's basically what, what he's saying right there, but he's going to explain this. By the way, who remembers actually being born? Yeah, me neither. And we don't remember, but how much effort did you put into that? You know, our physical birth, we didn't really do anything to make that happen, right? It was done for us. Somebody else made it happen. We were just along for the ride. We, we just came out hopefully quickly and without a lot of pain to our mom, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, same thing. We need to be born spiritually. We can't do it. But when we experience it, after that, we're different. It's a whole new life. And Jesus telling Nicodemus that being religious, being spiritual, that, that's not it. And he's saying the same thing to us. You can be spiritual. That does not get you to heaven. You could recognize who Jesus is. That does not get you to heaven. We'll get into that. So this whole statement, it confuses Nicodemus. So then he asks a follow-up question. Born again, what's that all about? 
How can a person be born again? Is what he asked, verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I don't know where Nicodemus is going with this, but it's not sounding great, you know. You can't climb into your mom's womb as an adult and be born again. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus answered, verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is a physical birth, and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then he explains that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. So Jesus is trying to clear this up. Hey, when I say born again, I'm talking about being born spiritually, being born of the spirit. And there's kind of a, a saying that wraps this up. And it says this, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. It's just a way to remember, hey, we're born once physically. If we never get reborn, we not spiritually, we never become a follower of Christ. We not only die physically, but we die spiritually in that we are outcasts and we spend eternity separated from God and real life. We die physically and spiritually. But if we're born twice, both physically and spiritually, then we only die once. We only die physically because spiritually we're alive in Christ forever. And there's also a play on words going on here. In Greek, like a lot of languages, the word for spirit, which is sort of the life of us beyond the physical, the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same word. A bunch of languages have it this way, not English. But the word for spirit and the word for... And I think that happened because early on people recognized that the, or, or even breath, wind, spirit, breath, all the same word in Greek. I think that may have happened because people recognize that when, when people failed to start passing wind out of their nose and mouth, when, they, when their breath was gone, their life was gone. And so they've died. And so the same word, but you have to figure out which way it's translated and, and Jesus goes on, now you can't see the wind, you can just see its effects. And he's saying it's the same exact way when you're born of the Spirit, you can't see that happen physically, but it changes everything. When we're born of the Spirit, we see the effects, we're changed. We view life differently, our motivations are different. What we're living for has changed. It shows up. The problem is, and why we're talking about this, and why I'm going to spend some time just on this born again part, is because statistically, today, in a Bible-believing evangelical church, there's a fair amount of people who are not actually born again. So statistically, that would say, in a, in a group like this, and we talk about this stuff all the time, that there would be, you know, 20 people, 50 people that aren't actually 
really born again. And so Nicodemus, he's getting a little frustrated in the conversation here. He's a little exasperated. You know, so he's like, okay, well, what's that mean? Well, what's, what's born again mean? Well, that's born of the spirit, but that's not good enough. He still has another question. He follows up and he's like, well, what do you mean spiritual birth? What's this born a second time? By the, what are you talking about? How's that? How can these things happen? And when, he, when they say these things, he's talking about this spiritual rebirth that Jesus is saying, which is what born again means. So continue in verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And here in this exchange, Jesus is challenging the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, He's challenging him, you need to understand who I am. You need to rethink who I am, even though you just met me. And Jesus, this high-ranking religious official, he's saying to, Jesus is saying to him, hey, you want to talk to heaven? I'm from heaven. And to get to heaven is only through me. That's what he's saying. And then here's what happens. There's a shift here. And since Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament law and has the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, Jesus then goes back to the story of Moses in the wilderness and the snakes that I told you about at the very beginning, verse 14. Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Very interesting here. Jesus, in order to explain born again by the Spirit, goes back to this obscure Old Testament history in Numbers chapter 21 about the snakes, but not obscure to Nicodemus. He's all over that. He has that story memorized. He knows all about that story. And Jesus uses it. And he remembers, yeah, God didn't take away the snakes. God made a way for snake-bitten people to be saved. And Jesus is saying, hey, just like God provided a way of salvation to those people by looking at the snake that was lifted up, he says, I'll provide salvation if people will look to me when I'm lifted up. And here, here's the interesting thing. Lifted up now by the first century, because they didn't have crucifixion back in Moses' day, but by the first century, there's crucifixion, and this term lifted up refers specifically to this torture that the Roman Empire put on the worst offenders. Crucifixion, it was called being lifted up. Boom! Jesus ties it all together right there. And Nicodemus is reeling. He's having a hard time to understand it, what Jesus just said. 
Now, John the disciple, who's writing this book, continues in the next verse to kind of recap what's being said. And, then he, and when he does that, he uses the most famous verse in the Bible, probably a verse that you know and that you can say. And so we pick it up at John 3.16, the next verse right after him being talking about the snakes in the wilderness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's Disciple John's recap. For God so loved the world. Ever wonder just about the word so? God so loved. So's lo the word so, it's like a multiplier. It's God. God loved so much, he loved in this way. God so loved that he did this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's the same thing Paul taught. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, and what does all this mean? What are we getting at? Jesus is teaching and John, the disciple, is backing him up. He's saying, yeah, this is the deal. This is what I heard. I know Jesus as well as anybody does. I was there with his ministry longer than anyone else. He's saying, we are all snake-bitten people. We have all sinned against God, and we are all under God's righteous, holy judgment. And we all have a problem. We are going to die in judgment for our sin. But God has made a way for us to be saved. And that's what he's talking about. Hey, we've all been bitten. We all have sin in our heart. But we can receive God's provision for salvation when we cry out from our heart, God, I've sinned. God, I know I've sinned. Save me. When we cry out, God, I've sinned against you, and we believe by looking to Jesus who became sin for us on the cross. Think about it. Why you know, what, what's the deal with the snakes? Why are the snakes back in Moses' time? Usually in the Bible, snakes are a symbol of sin. I mean, remember Genesis 3 and all that? We've talked about that recently. What, what is going on there? Well, what what's, what'd Paul just say? Jesus was lifted up. He died for our sin, but not just that. He became sin for us. He took our sinfulness and he gave us his righteousness for all who, and he did that for everyone, but we only get it when we come to him in belief. We get forgiveness, we get a new life. And now the disciple John, the author, who like I say, spent more time with Jesus than anybody in his ministry, he answers a question that nobody's asking, but he thinks we need to know, and I think we do, and it's simply this. Well, if that's, if that's it, 
if we all, even by our nature, even if we're not religious, we, we admit that we do wrong things. And just by logic, we know there's a creator. And so we have all these systems about, okay, well, that's what religion is. Okay, well, I've sinned. There's got to be a creator. I've done wrong, even that I think is wrong. That's probably not going to sit well. What do I do to fix that? And that's what religion is, all the system of things that you do to try to fix that. Of course, you never know if you've done enough. And Christianity is completely different. Christianity is not you making a sacrifice or giving offerings or gifts to try to fix it so you can be better with God. Christianity is God made the sacrifice. He did it for us. We don't bring anything. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus. And that's what... The disciple John who's writing this after Jesus stops talking is trying to explain to us. So the question is, why do people refuse it? If, if God's doing it for us, why would people refuse that? Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why do people refuse to be born again? Why do people refuse to come to God? Because they prefer darkness rather than light. Sin rather than right. Because our hearts are broken. They're evil. They're sinful. And this whole chapter is teaching us, know this. We don't get right with God by thinking about God or thinking about Jesus a certain way. Those are just thoughts. That we don't get right with God by doing anything or even thinking anything. We become true Christians when we admit to God that we have sinned against him and we cry out, God, I've sinned against you. And, and, and I'm desperate. There's not, I have nothing to save myself. I've sinned against you. And I'm looking at the cross, the provision that you have made for me because I don't have anything else. And I look to Jesus and not just believe that, that he existed or he is a teacher, even that he is the son of God. I, put, I believe in the sense of I'm putting my trust that Jesus died and paid for my sins and he is offering me forgiveness. The rest of John, beginning in verse 22, is John the disciple who's writing the book talking about the different John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is about Jesus' age. He started his ministry earlier. He's actually a cousin of Jesus 
and he hit the scene way before anybody knew about Jesus, and he was out in the wilderness, and he's wearing camel hair and eating wild honey and locusts, and he's just a different hermit kind of a guy, but people recognize he's a prophet because he's telling them, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and repent and be baptized. Repent, change your thinking. Repent, admit your sin and turn from it. And that's the best thing he could say to get ready for this Messiah who is already on this scene but wasn't known at the time. And so he's saying all that, and and here's what happens. At the same time, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he starts having followers and his Disciples start baptizing people, and now people are saying, hey, we've got two things going on. Here's John the Baptist over here. He's baptizing people, but now we have Jesus, and his followers are baptizing people. So they go to John and say, hey, John, what's up? You're baptizing people, but the guy that you said was the Messiah, the very Lamb of God, the guy we've been waiting for, his, his disciples are baptizing people too. What's up with that? Which one? What do we do? And John says, it's like I've been saying all along. I'm not the Messiah. He is. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He must increase. I've got to decrease. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's who will pay for your sins. He's who you've been waiting for, not me. I'm just a forerunner. I'm just telling everybody, get ready. In the last verse, John the Baptist says this in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. This is John the Baptist saying, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I think it took a few years for Nicodemus. I mean, he has this exchange with Jesus and then he's just kind of off the scene. And he's, he's a prominent guy, so we'd think we'd hear about him. But three years later, when Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life, it's the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, who have Jesus executed. And Nicodemus is part of that. There's actually 70 men on this court, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, liberal sect, Judaism. And so Nicodemus was there. He probably witnessed the crucifixion. He's there in Jerusalem when right outside the walls on a hill, the Roman soldiers are beating Jesus in town, marching him out the gates, nailing him to a cross, and putting him up, lifting him up in crucifixion and torture. And Nicodemus had to be remembering that first conversation that he ever had with Jesus. Just like the serpent was lifted up, the snake in the wilderness in the time of Moses, so I will be lifted up, Jesus says, to save people from their sins. And it might have took a while, but 
every indication is the Bible as we believe, probably Nicodemus finally crossed the line of faith. Because after Jesus was killed, he goes to the governor, Pilate, who had Jesus killed because of the Sanhedrin, and he begs for Jesus' body. And he does that as, at the risk of his reputation, maybe his life, but he gets permission to take Jesus down from the cross after the soldiers are sure that he's dead. And he and another rich man named Joseph of Arimathea take the body and quickly bury it before the Sabbath begins. And that's our indication, although we're not told that after years of thinking or maybe watching the crucifixion that it all came together for Nicodemus and he understood, hey, my system, all these rules and traditions and all these things that we do, that doesn't get me any closer to God. The only way for me to be close to God is to be reborn through the Spirit because of not something I even do because something Jesus did. It's just I believe in that. I look to that in faith. I put my trust in him alone. And so it doesn't matter who you are. Good, bad, indifferent, Jew, Gentile. By nature, we're all infected with sin. And even religious people can come to God. Even rich people can come to God. Joseph, Mary, Matthias. And even the worst of us, the the poorest of us. God invites all to come. We just have to recognize our sin and we cry out to him. And we recognize that our only, our only hope is Jesus. There's nothing else. And so today, I'd invite you just to pray. If you're sitting here and you're okay with Jesus and you believe who he was and all that stuff, but you don't know that that you've really come to Jesus, that it's all him and not you at all. And then that coming to him, has, has it changed your life? Because it hasn't, there's a problem. If you don't see life differently, that's an issue. And so if you're not sure that you've done that, I want to lead you in a prayer. Just between you and God, just a personal thing. Let's bow our heads, just something like this. Just make these you know, trust in Christ. And you can express that to him through a, a prayer like this, something like this. Father God, I know that I've sinned against you. I admit it. And there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no good deed. There's no good works. There's no religious stuff I can do to fix that. But you provided a way. You provided the sacrifice by allowing your one and only son, Jesus, to come live a perfect life and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin because all sin has to be punished. And God, right now, I, I not only believe that Jesus died for my sin, I, I'm putting my complete trust in him and him alone. And Father, I'm asking you to, through your spirit, to come into my life, change me, transform me, 
Lord, help me live a brand new life, seeing everything different, new purpose, new meaning, new everything, and to follow you in gratitude. God, thank you for loving me. In Christ's name, amen.